women, we know what it looks like, but sometimes we're not quite sure how to get there. We uh, think, okay, I'm going to act wise, I'm going to act wise. We go into a situation and we blow it and we don't act wise and we can't really just will ourselves into becoming women of wisdom. There are some things that uh, we can do to get us there without just willing it. And I was trying to think of a visual with the ideas that I wanted to express today. And I had recently talked with my parents about this story, so it was on my mind. But a few years ago, I think my mom was probably close to 70 at the time. They were visiting Ted and I and our kids. And we have this really uh, crazy driveway. So if you've ever been to my house, we have lots of people say, why don't you pave that? Why don't you get concrete and put it on that? And it'd be like we've had it appraised like $15,000 to concrete this driveway. It's steep, very steep, very long, lots of potholes, covered in stones. Okay, so you have to get that picture. So my parents are visiting, and I can't remember the circumstances, but Ted and I and my mom and dad are standing at the top of the hill, and Ted is holding to, onto Tyler's bike because I think he had left it at the top of the driveway. And without a moment's notice, my mom grabs the bike and sits on it and starts going down the driveway. (laughs) We are speechless. We just go, (gasps) I mean, none of us moved. We were paralyzed, the three of us. My mom is flying flying down our driveway. I would never have attempted it. My children didn't even attempt it. She probably hadn't been on a bike in about 20 years. I think she figured that out when she was about halfway down the driveway. There's no way, you know, if you're on stones, big stones, you can't really put the brakes on without flipping out. So she was smart enough to figure out, I can't put the brakes on. But she also wasn't going to pedal. But she's so... So from the back, she's got her legs straight out. And she is going to ride that driveway out. And so we are just like at the top of the hill. Well, the driveway stops after a long thing and takes a hard left. If you keep going straight, you go into the woods. We're watching my mom thinking, there she'll be going, into the woods. She slowly manages to turn that bike. It was a miracle. I think angels were running along beside her. And then we can't see her anymore. So then we're just listening. (laughs) At the top of the hill, pretty soon we don't hear anything. So we go take off. We run down. She has not fallen. It, it, It is amazing thing. And she is still sitting on the bike, not saying a word. Very pale. And I don't think she's ever gotten on a bike again. Now, it wasn't very wise for my mom to get on the bike. But I thought the bike ride itself was a great picture of what it's like to try to go through life being unwise. Those bumps, those holes, those turns, we are scared. It is scary to go through life when we're not wise when our circumstances overwhelm us and control us. And we don't want to live like that. We don't want our circumstances to dictate who we are. We want our relationship with God to dictate who we are. We want to reflect who God is by how we behave. 
Well, we have to do that by rolling up our sleeves and getting to know God. And that is what Abigail will teach us. Being wise is a result of knowing God. It isn't enough just to know Christ is our Savior. You and I can both say that we know there are Christians in this world who don't act very wise. In fact, years ago, we had a brand-new Christian come to Christ Chapel, and he wanted to meet with Ted, and he said, you know, I'm kind of confused, and this was a worldly guy, and his, his um, salvation experience was just so wonderful. But he, he still had a lot of these other kind of friends, but he came to our church, and he said, I need to talk to you. Uh, last week, I was in a parking lot at a grocery store, and a 90-something-year-old man um, hit my, dented my car a little bit with his car. He got confused. and um, So I have a lot of friends telling me I should sue him. I could get a lot of money. And he said, and I was wondering what you think about that, because these are my Christian friends telling me to do this. There are Christians in the world who maybe got in the door of heaven by accepting Christ, but then they haven't pursued the things of God. That was a great opportunity for them to teach this new believer what it's like to live in the compassion of Christ. If we desire to be wise women, we have to remember our salvation is just the beginning of a life journey into knowing the heart of God, into seeking and pursuing him. The more we do the spiritual disciplines of what we're doing today, of being in the word, of fellowship, of fasting, of prayer, of obedience and meditation, the more we will understand life like God meant for us to understand it, and then we will think and act like wise women. Look at Proverbs 2 on your verse sheet. If you seek wisdom and search for her as for a hidden treasure, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. So Abigail's story is a story about a woman who understood God. Now her circumstances were crummy. Married to this godless fool who made a lot of poor choices and lived a pretty debauched life. But she didn't let her circumstances dictate who she was because she had invested herself into knowing who God was. Adelaide spoke last week about Hannah and her son, Samuel. I want to just catch us up where we are right now. When she left Samuel in the hands of Eli, the priest of Shiloh, she left a young boy who would grow to become a mighty man of God, used by God, a judge in Israel. He was filled with the Spirit. And this is how God chose to work with the people of Israel. Other nations had kings. The Israel people had wise prophets and judges from God. The Israel people, the Hebrew nation, began to look around, see that other nations had kings, and said, we want to be like the other nations. We want kings. So Samuel becomes the last judge in Israel, and he appoints the very first king, King Saul. Saul eventually disobeys God. Samuel has to tell him, you are no longer in God's eyes, the king of Israel. I am going to anoint 
the next king of Israel, and that turns out to be a young shepherd boy named David. Samuel does anoint him. This doesn't go over well with Saul. So the first years of David's life, he is on the run. He is hiding in caves, living all over, hiding in uh, other nations, just traveling to keep away from Saul, who wants to take his life and protect his kingship. David had a big following, though, at this time. Lots of men, mighty men, who were with him, moving from place to place. This is where our story begins in the life of David. Before we learn, though, what wisdom is, we have to meet Nabal, so we learn what wisdom is not. And I don't want us to tune these truths out we're going to learn about Nabal because, um, again, we can stay really shallow in our faith if we choose to. If we're not pursuing God, we don't know God. We don't view life in the right way. And so we also, as Christians, can fall into some of these same ways of looking at life that Nabal did. It's just good for us to remember that. On your outline, a life lived apart from the knowledge of the Holy One is a foolish life. And write Nabal's name right next to that. David himself gives us a definition of a fool in the Psalms. And I wonder if he was thinking about Nabal when he wrote it. Look on your verse sheet. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. Let's meet this guy. 1 Samuel 25, verse 1. Now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him and there buried him at his home in Ramah. And then David moved down into the desert of Maon. A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats, three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband, a Calebite, was surly and mean in his dealings. David, the future king, he's in the wilderness of Maon, and this is sheep-shearing country. And when sheep are being sheared, there's a party. There's festivities, there's food, there's drinking, there's a lot of a big party here. That's the scene in Carmel, which was only a mile from the area in Maon where David was. Carmel means garden spot or vineyard land. It was a lush area. And we're right off introduced to a a rich man who is shearing his sheep. He's a descendant of Caleb. So he's called a Calebite. This is the Caleb that went with Joshua after Moses died and took the children of Israel into the promised land. Now, we can tell that none of his genes caught on to Nabal because he is not a wise guy and Caleb was a very wise man. So Nabal is no Caleb. In fact, Nabal's name means fool which I'm sure you uh, read in your notes there. And that word fool doesn't mean stupidity. It means moral perversity. That's what a fool is. And he's immediately contrasted with his wife, Abigail. And guess what Abigail's name means? My father is joyous. Isn't that the best name? My father is joyous because of who she is in life. She's intelligent which is translated, she has good understanding, beautiful inside and out. On the other hand, Nabal is surly or churlish. We don't use that word much. 
having a churlish day, meaning hard, and he's mean, meaning ill-behaved. But what I thought was interesting is that the first thing the author wants us to know about Nabal is that he is wealthy, that he has 1,000 goats, 3,000 sheep. Try to picture that many animals on a mountainside. Maybe the author identifies Nabal with this summary of his possessions because that was the most important thing in Nabal's life, his wealth and his possessions. And that's probably how the people in Carmel knew him. If they said, you know that guy named Nabal? They'd say, yeah, you mean that greedy rich guy with all the animals? He's in Carmel right now. They wouldn't have said, yeah, that nice guy. That generous man, that godly man, he was known only by his wealth and by his greed and his foolishness. On your outline, I said, when we don't know God, we find our security in the gifts of God instead of on God himself. And Jesus warned about this. Look at uh, Luke 12 on your verse sheet. Jesus said, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of his possessions. You fool, who will get what you have prepared for yourself when your life is demanded from you? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. When we quit pursuing God, this is one temptation it's easy to fall into. Look at verse 4 with me. While David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel, greet him in my name, say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, good health to all that is yours. Now I hear it's sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we didn't mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they'll tell you, Therefore, be favorable toward my young men since we've come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. David had been protecting Nabal's property and his servants. And, you know, that would have been a temptation. 3,000 sheep right in front of you, they did not take even one of them. They were like a wall encompassed around them, not only guarding the animals, but guarding the servants and guarding all of Nabal's possessions. And Charles Ryrie put it this way, David and his men have been protecting the flocks and possessions in return for provisions, and payday have finally arrived. This compensation was rightfully theirs. And during this time of sheep shearing, generosity played a big part in it. It was expected. In fact, that was something that God really tried to establish in the hearts of his people to be kind to the poor and the less fortunate. Later on, when you read in Nehemiah about a big festival they were having, he says uh, this, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and then send some to those who don't have anything prepared. This was an attitude the Israelites were supposed to have. In fact, look what Solomon, David's own son, later wrote on Proverbs 3. He says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. So David speaks a blessing through his servants, calls himself your son, a sign of humility, and asks Nabal any kind of provision you can give us. 
Now, Nabal's response will point to the reality that he does not know the God of Israel. Look at verse 10. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. I put on your outline, when we don't know God, we don't care about the things that God cares about. God cared about David and his future. Nabal asked two questions that he knew the answer to. Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? And I wanted to say, if you didn't know David or his name, how did you know he was the son of Jesse? I don't really know. Nabal knows good and well the stories of David. Nabal knows the story of how David knocked a giant man named Goliath down and killed him. He knows Samuel anointed him. He would have known that David was known to be filled with the power and the spirit of God, had an army of devoted followers. The truth is Nabal didn't care because he doesn't care about the things of God. Look at verse 11. Why should I take my bread and my water and the meat I've slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? This reminded me of some two-year-olds. My water, my bread, my shears, my meat. On your outline, when we don't know God, we claim possession over that which is God's. Look at James 1. The truth is, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And the next verse, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Our perspective of how we fit in this world will never work if we don't first understand that God created the world and what part God plays in the world. Otherwise, we're like Nabal. We think the world revolves around us, around me. And these possessions, I got them in my own strength, in my own power. And we become arrogant and proud like he was. And I thought it was interesting here that he accuses David of being a servant who has broken from his master. Now, if he was referring to this, in the way I think he was, he could have been talking about the fact that he knew, he didn't know David, and he knew the story that David used to be in Saul's home, and now he's been running from Saul for a long time. So he says there's lots of servants that break away from their masters and tries to demote David's uh, personality and identity as low as he can go and ignore the fact that David has broken from Saul because of God's great, great calling. And I also thought it was interesting that Nabal acts like, yes, lots of servants leave their masters, as if his wouldn't. If you read on, they can't stand the guy. And yet David's got this mighty following. The men around David would have given their life for him. Nabal's servants don't respect him at all. Verse 14 tells us, He hurled insults at these men. Actually, it was probably verse 11. 
And when he said that the word in there is scorned, it means to yell or to scream. When he says these things, he is partying. He's got a lot of people around him. He's got a lot of food, a lot of wine. He's probably drunk. And I want you to picture that scene because you've got these men from David, the king of Israel, on the outskirts of this party, talking to these people to bring great blessings. And Nabal's response is yelling and screaming in defiance. And when David's servants report to David the arrogance of Nabal, David immediately in great anger yells out to 400 men, put on your swords, we're heading to Nabal. Off they go to take revenge. David is intent on killing every male in Nabal's family. So now there's two bikes going down the driveway. Out of control. David's on one. Nabal's on the other. And the good thing is, when wisdom gets involved, a really bad situation can become good. And as women, we can often be that person in a bad and hard situation. When we walk with God, we can turn the tables and the story can take a good turn. I think wisdom always alters wrongdoing. And, you know, I was thinking about different wise women and trying to think of a a great illustration. Of course, I think often of Corrie Ten Boom and her sister Betsy that were in the concentration camps in Germany. Now, I can't think of a much worse situation than being captured and stripped of your dignity and told to live in this little rat-infested shack for no just reason, covered in fleas, and go in there and and, uh, exist like that. But Corey and Betsy knew God way deep in their hearts. And so when they entered a really bad situation, they turned a little shack full of desperate, frightened women into a time of studying the Bible, of singing worship songs, of prayer. And that little shack was actually a source of hope and light for the women that were captive inside of it. When we know God, We can change things. You can open doors. We all have kind of um, difficult family situations, distant relatives, close relatives. We can walk in a door with those people and either add to the chaos or turn a bad thing into something good. I was talking to Joni this morning about how... um, She and Cheryl and some other women in this church do the good news clubs at different schools around here in the elementary school. And I thought, there's another example. You got 50 elementary kids after school in a room together. That's kind of chaos. But when godly, wise women come in, they know how to bring peace to it and order, and they get to present the truth about God every time they do that. This is what's happening here. Abigail enters a really chaotic situation. Write the name Abigail on your outline. A life lived in the knowledge of the Holy One is a life of wisdom. 
Proverbs 9 tells us, 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Abigail knew God. It resulted in wise attitudes and actions. And I think what I want us to grab in the next few minutes, these four truths that Abigail had firmly established in her heart about who God was, because I think... um, If we grasp them ourselves, we will see life differently and therefore we will live differently when we act upon them. We can become wise women. Okay, one of Nabal's servants tells the story to Abigail, which tells us she's already proved herself in the family that she's the one that you go to with difficult news because she's got wisdom. But what happens in the rest of the story is really all about God. It's fun to look at Abigail, and it's right to focus on the things she does that are wise, but I think we get more insight into her if we think about the things she says. And that's what I want to look at. Verse uh, 18. Abigail lost no time. She took... 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five sayas of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. David had just said, it's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the desert so that nothing of his was missing. He's paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belongs to him. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, my Lord, Let the blame be on me alone. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. May my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name is fool, and folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I didn't see the men that my master sent. I want us to picture David and his men. They're descending down a hillside, and what a shock to see a caravan of donkeys descending up the hillside. But what a bigger shock to see a woman pulling up the rear. Her wisdom has made her brave. And it seems that when she jumps off of her donkey, that the whole army stops to listen to her and to talk with her. And in humility and servanthood, she explains the foolishness of her husband. Now, at first when you read that, you think, well, she didn't have to do that. But she did have to do that because what she's saying to David is, don't pass me by and think you're going to get anything accomplished with my husband. I have to tell you, he will not listen to you. Put all the blame on me and now deal with me. Let's do this together. What did Abigail know about God that made her move so quickly to stop David? On your outline, I think Abigail understood that vengeance belongs to God. Just before this event, David had a couple of opportunities to take revenge on his enemy Saul, but he didn't do it. And on one occasion, 
He's in a cave hiding. Saul actually comes into the very cave where he's hiding. He's so close to David that David actually cuts off a little piece of his robe, which sort of bothered his conscience afterwards. He lets Saul leave. Saul's back down the valley. David steps out and yells out to Saul, Understand I'm not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I haven't wronged you, even though you're hunting me down to take my life. And then David says these wonderful words. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. And the same man is now standing before Abigail with her face to the ground, and in his anger he has forgotten his understanding of vengeance belongs to the Lord. Abigail has not. Look at verse 26. Now, since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives and you live, may your enemies and all who intend to harm you be, to harm my master, be like Nabal. Look at verse 31. My master should not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. When the Lord's brought you success, remember your servant. Look at Leviticus 19. Abigail knew this verse. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You shall not take vengeance or bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Abigail believed David was God's choice to lead Israel. Let God deal with your enemies, David. Don't avenge yourself with your own hands. Don't have that staggering, I like that she used that word, that staggering burden of needless bloodshed by having avenged yourself. And then she says at the end of verse 31, when God gives you great success, she's saying to him, leave it to the Lord. He will take care of the Nabals in your life. He will take care of the Nabals in our life. And if we get a grasp of that reality of who God is, think of how we might behave differently. Think of how we might walk in more wisdom if we truly believe it's not up to me to right these wrongs. I'm going to leave that with my God. On your outline, we need not avenge ourselves because we know God will handle the injustices in our lives. Believing that is a giant step to becoming a wise woman. And how can we know he's going to do that? Because God is just. On your outline, Abigail understood that God is just. Look at verse 27. Abigail says, Let this gift which your servants brought to my master be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servants' offense. For the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master, because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. She demonstrates her belief that God is just two ways. First of all, she doesn't show up empty-handed. She knows God is just. He rewards the good. He punishes the bad. She knows these men deserve this, and so she comes to give them what they deserve, these provisions. Unlike her wicked husband, she knows the laws of God are laws of love 
and laws of justice. And secondly, because we saw in those verses, she believes God will reward David because of his devotion to the things of God. She says the Lord will make a lasting dynasty for you because you fight the Lord's battles. And lasting dynasty means an enduring house. This was almost prophetic. Abigail is speaking to David very words that God is going to speak to David in the very near future about an enduring house, and it's called the Davidic Covenant. So keep your place in 1 Samuel. Let's look at that in 2 Samuel, chapter 7. In verse 8, here's what God says to David. Tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on the earth. Go down to the end of verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. He's repeating what Abigail had said to David. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, beginning with Solomon ending with Jesus Christ himself, who would reign forever in the lineage of David. So Abigail is saying, you know, don't have some huge wrongdoing in your life because God is just. He wants to reward you. Do the right thing so he can reward you. This is our calling from God as well. We are to walk in righteousness, to be about God's business, and if we really believe that God is just, we don't become bitter women when hard things happen to us because we trust that God is just. We have an eternal perspective. We look past today's problems and look for our future reward one day. This is what Abigail's reminding David. On your outline, we need not let trials overwhelm us because we know that God will work out his justice in his timing. Romans 8.28 tells us, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And then on your outline, Abigail understood that God is sovereign. Look at verse 29. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, David, the life of you will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. Okay, who was the best slingshot user in Israel? David. So Abigail wisely puts an illustrative picture in his mind that he could totally relate to. Nobody else had taken one stone, put it in a sling, walked up to a nine-foot-nine Philistine, covered in armor, and got that stone to hit right here about the only part of his body that was exposed. So he knows what she means when she says, that's what he's going to do with your enemies. No one can stop 
the plans of God. Your enemies will be slung far away like the stone in a pocket of a slingshot. Your enemies, like Goliath, like Saul, like Nabal, in the hands of a sovereign God, they are nothing. Your life, David, will be bound in the bundle of the living by God himself. The Hebrews used to tie a lot of their valuables up in a leathery kind of pouch and carry that with them. It was their most prized treasure. Abigail saying, David, that's you in the hands of God, in his sovereign hands. Do you think any of these things in your life can alter the plans that God has made for you? You are God's treasure. We have to understand that in our life, on your outline, I said we need not fear because we know nothing can alter the plans that God has made for us. When we allow that reality of who God is in our heart, it changes how we behave. It's a wonderful truth. I read this poem, Thou made us for thyself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. When I shall with my whole self cleave to thee, I shall nowhere have sorrow or labor, and my life shall wholly live as wholly full of thee. We trust those things because we are God's treasure. We are in his hands. Nothing can stop his plans for our life. Romans 8.31 tells us, To these he called, he justified. Who he justified, he will glorify What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Christ is at the right hand of God interceding for us. We are also bound securely in the bundle of the living. Next on your outline, Abigail understood that God is faithful. Look at verse 30. Abigail says, when the Lord has done for my master every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him leader over Israel, my master will not have on his conscience this burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord has brought my master success, remember your servant, Abigail, which he definitely did. Abigail realizes there are three ways God was going to prove himself faithful to David in this one verse. First of all, she said, he will accomplish everything he told you he was going to do for you. Secondly, he will make you leader over Israel. Thirdly, he will bring you success. And earlier in the story, I loved it when Abigail says to David, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, in one breath, Abigail is uniting God with David. As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there are plans that God is going to be faithful in your life to do. On your outline, we don't need to worry over our future because we know that God keeps his promises. Look at 1 Thessalonians. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. 
One of the neatest things I loved about this story is seeing what happens when we act like wise women. What are the results of wise choices in our life? First of all, the praise and worship of God. Look at verse 32. David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. He sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who's kept me from harming you, if you hadn't quickly come to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand which she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. By her actions, David is reminded of God's vengeance, of God's justice, of God's sovereignty, of God's faithfulness in his life. No wonder he doesn't want to just heap praise on her. His first thought is to say, wow. Thank you for reminding me about who God is. And it ends up in worship. And he believes that God himself sent Abigail to him and thanks her for her wisdom, which is what truthfully uh, people feel when we get to be a part of their life and we walk in wisdom. He is reminded because of her understanding of the Holy One that he is to be committed to the Holy One himself And not live by his impulses, but live by faith in God. And I like what it says that he accepted from Abigail's hand what she had brought. I think it was just more than the food. I think he was accepting all of her wise words that led him into worship with God. Secondly, when we are women that act wisely, we have the peace of God within our hearts. In verse 35, David says, okay, get up, go home in peace. I've heard your words. I'll do what you say. And I think it's a great picture of us that when we understand well the character of God in our hearts, what else gets in there? Peace. We aren't women that can be moved and women that have fears and women that don't know what to do. We walk like Abigail did with great decisiveness and quickly because peace is inside of our hearts. We don't have to be undecided. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to be afraid. We are women of peace. We learn to take all matters to God because we know who he is. Look at Philippians. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. And then the peace of God which passes understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, God's blessings will come in our lives. Now, we know that the blessing that came to Abigail was she got to marry King David. But before that happened, I really think she honors her foolish husband. You know, there are so many things that Abigail could have done with Nabal. So when she comes back, one thing she could have done is never told him. But she chooses to honor him and tell him what the story is. She goes to him. He's drunk. So she chooses to wait. She uses wise timing. She waits till he's sober. She doesn't humiliate him in front of his party guests. She doesn't call him out. She doesn't scream and yell and nag at him. She waits. And I think when she explains the story to him, I think she probably explained, I had to do the will of God. 
I had to obey what I knew God would want me to do, Nabal. There would have been innocent people killed. The future king of Israel would have had blood on his hands that God never meant him to have. Nabal has some kind of stroke after he hears these words, and ten days later he dies, which David sees as God's judgment, and quickly asks Abigail to become his wife, which Abigail quickly agrees to. We will be filled with blessings we didn't even realize. The more we pursue God, the more we grow in wisdom and get God's blessings. I put down on your verse sheet some other verses you might want to look at that tell you about other blessings that come to us when we're wise, things like joy and strength, protection. Jeremiah 9.24 tells us at the bottom of our sheet to know who he is, and that's what we should boast about. The more we seek him, the more we know him. The more we know him, the wiser we will be. Let me finish with this poem. It were my soul's desire to see the face of God. It were my soul's desire to rest in his abode. It were my soul's desire to study zealously. This too my soul's desire, a clear rule set for me. It were my soul's desire to have a spirit free from gloom. It were my soul's desire, new life beyond this doom. It were my soul's desire to imitate my king. It was my soul's desire, his ceaseless praise to sing. It were my soul's desire, when heaven's gate is won, to find my soul's desire, clear and shining like the sun. Grant, Lord, my soul's desire, deep waves of cleansing sighs, Grant, Lord, my soul's desire from these earthly cares to rise. This still, my soul's desire, whatever life affords, to gain my soul's desire and see thy face, O Lord. Let's pray. Father, in your face we see all we need to know. And we praise you for that and ask that you continue to bring us to know you more, that we might reflect you more. And we love you for your incredible love for us. In Christ's holy name, amen.